I'm from rural Pennsylvania in the Appalachia region, meaning that the worst natural hazard I was ever exposed to was snow. Albeit lots of snow, but not much else. I also grew up in a tiny town where we had a volunteer fire department. So that meant when they'd get a call, a siren, very loud siren, would go off in the middle of town that could be heard for miles. So no matter where folks were, they'd hear it and get to the station to deal with whatever emergency there was. After college, I moved away from Pennsylvania to uh, Memphis, Tennessee, out of the state for the first time. So one night, I'm hanging out with my roommate at the time when I hear this siren go off. And I say to him, hey, Memphis is a big city. I don't think they have fire sirens here. What is that? And my roommate, who's originally from Wichita, Kansas, says, uh, Shane, that's not a fire siren. That's a tornado warning. We're, we're under an active tornado warning. Wait, what? Images of Twister filled my mind, and I immediately cleared out my closet for shelter while my seasoned roommate just laughed at me. And we were fine. And I eventually got used to the sirens while still taking them very seriously. And while I really enjoyed my time in the Mid-South, I don't miss ducking and covering. Everyone has a story, even, or maybe especially, scientists. Science affects each and every one of us. Let's talk about it. From the American Geophysical Union, I'm Shane Hanlon, and this is Sci and Tell. So I'll admit that my experiences with natural hazards could honestly, or probably not even called experiences in the first place, but... I'm excited to hear from our guest today whose research, or at least uh, one of his research paths, looks into hazards more seriously. So I'm going to bring in Nisha to tell us a little bit more. Hey, Nisha, what do we got? Yeah, so on this episode, we talked with Saleh Ahmed, who studies natural hazards in Bangladesh and the Inner Mountain West. After the recent climate report and the summer of like erratic weather, I'm really excited to talk about the urgency of environmental research with Saleh. Yeah, this is, uh, this is especially timely. Very excited for this. And our interviewer was Paul Molin. My name is Saleh Ahmed. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Public Service at Boise State University. I'm core faculty member of Environmental Studies, Global Studies, and Public Policy. And my role is uh, supporting on teaching and research and uh, developing new curriculum, this kind of work. So that's part of my usual works that I see. Actually, on my research is very international in nature. My major focus is like how coastal farmers, uh, particularly in coastal Bangladesh, are trying to cope with the various natural hazards, such as like sea level rise or tropical cyclones or coastal floodings. So how they're trying to cope, what resources are available to them, and what are the challenges they are facing, and how science can actually help them to improve their livelihoods, overall farm activities, or something like that. So that's my primary research. I actually say I have two secondary research, which is like started from 2017. I'm not sure whether you know or not, like uh, almost a million refugee from Myanmar, the Rohingya refugee actually came to Bangladesh since they actually faced some uh, major violence in their home country. 
So right now they are in Southeast Bangladesh. This is actually very, I would say, precarious landscapes. Like even actually yesterday, it's more than 10 people died because of the heavy rainfall. So like they are also facing various types of environmental hazard that part of the country in addition to many other, you know, like the refugee crisis, usual, like food security, uncertainty about their future and all that kind of stuff. So my, that is also kind of like my secondary research where I'm trying to understand the linkage between sustainability and peace. So how peace can contribute to sustainability or how a well-articulated sustainability or like uh, a development that can be like positive impact on people's life, including those people, can contribute to the peace. So that's uh, kind of like my secondary research, which is, which I would say 2A, my 2B is actually how the changing pattern of community, particularly in the Intermountain West. So like Idaho, Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, that part of this part of the country, because last several years, so we have seen a huge population influx coming, people coming from different parts uh, of the country. But at the same time, like uh, there's some economic change, structural change, change in people's uh, lifestyles, change in community fabrics. So I'm trying to understand how those kind of like, I would say, mostly amenity driven migration are changing the local fabric, local society. Uh, are they positive or negative? That has to still kind of like unfolding. So I'm actually trying to understand those as well. Actually, very recently, I got one research funding with one of my colleagues. So I see uh, like uh, next uh, one year we'll be busy on doing those stuff, like how ethnic minorities in coastal Bangladesh and in coastal India are facing environmental stresses. So is it just the environmental stresses or there is something else also contributing to their vulnerability? like uh, societal issues or political issues or, you know, like uh, colonial history, all those kind of stuff contributing to their like vulnerable situation in that part of the world. So next one year, I see I'll be very much busy with that project, project management. We have colleagues from Bangladesh, from India. You're probably the only person I know who's doing research in Bangladesh and Idaho. <laughs> That's, that would be uniqueness, right? <laughs> I am originally from coastal Bangladesh, so that's the place where I was born, brought up, uh, did my undergraduate university. So to me, natural hazard particularly was part of yearly experience. Like even if you now, if you actually check internet, you will see that uh, Bangladesh is one of the most climate vulnerable countries. Every year, every year, like with very few exceptions, every year they experience some level of natural hazards like heavy rainfalls, floods, cyclones, that kind of stuff. So those are my very early childhood memories. And from, since then, I, I really wanted to do something that actually I can relate to the people, that can impact people's life. So that actually made me, I would say, interested on, you know, in large scale, like how environmental change is happening, particularly in that part of the world. And then, you know, like when I grew up, I when different countries I studied and worked in Europe, Middle East, Africa, uh, as part of my engagement with various organizations. And I realized those natural hazards or environmental stresses is not very unique for just for coastal Bangladesh. 
it actually happens in many parts of the world and in different forms. So, and what I also found, like it's actually the poor and minority and the voiceless people always are the major victims of those crises. And no one knows actually like uh, how they are experiencing those or something like that. So actually before coming to Idaho, I, I did my graduate school at the University of Arizona. And uh, that was Southern Arizona, Tucson, Arizona. And uh, what I found like uh, is extreme summer temperature. And I had actually very like, I would say silly question or sometimes funny question like, I was fortunate enough to have an air-conditioned room, but I saw a lot of people just uh, walking around, homeless people, or you know, uh, like uh, road construction worker or low-income people who cannot afford air conditions. I saw that in even in the United States. So to me, like that's an universal problem. It's an universal problem. People in different parts of the world, they are facing this problem in different ways. Definitely in southern Arizona, they're not facing sea level rise, right? But they're facing extreme summer temperature. In coastal Bangladesh, maybe they are not experiencing extreme summer temperature, but they're facing tropical cyclones. So it has different forms. So I studied urban and rural planning from Kulna University in Bangladesh. And after that, I actually went to Europe. I did master's in spatial planning from Royal Institute of Technology in Sweden. And I did another master's in regional science from Germany, from University of Karlsruhe. Then I started working with the United Nations a couple of years. And then actually in 2011, I came to US. At that time, I was not very sure like whether I should pursue PhD or not. So uh, I actually ended up doing a master's in environmental sociology from Utah State University. And then I actually did one interdisciplinary PhD program in arid land resource sciences with a minor in global change from University of Arizona. And also actually that time, uh, I actually did uh, one graduate certificate on science communication. And, you know, like one thing, like maybe relevant with science communication, like it was not entirely, I did my certificate on science communication to communicate my science with the policy makers. But when I was in the field, I realized the, if I actually need to explain my science to the people who can like use it most, like the farmers or the local people or local government officials, I need to have a little more capacity and training on how I can actually translate my science to those normal people <laughs> who can actually use, who are the major, I would say, like can make the best use of the science. So uh, that actually made me interested on science communication, and I did my uh, graduate certificate on science communication. And since 2019, I'm at Boise State in the School of Public Service. You know, a lot of these interviews we've done that are part of this series, it's people who are working for NASA and, you know, they're developing telescopes or drones that are going to fly around Saturn 10 years from now, and that mission will take 30 years. And they're very big picture. And we you know, a lot of times I think when you when you hear about like global warming and environmental impacts, like it's very, you know, it's like how do we reduce emissions over the next 50 years or before 2050? Your your projects seem very like now. Of course, of course, sense of urgency. And I kind of like 
kind of like experience something interesting. Also, I you were right. Because even when I actually did my graduate training in my global change class, what was my minor uh, for my PhD, this is what I actually was taught, like sea level rise or like, uh, like all these things with larger time scale. And I, I agree with those. But I actually did one interesting experiment in Bangladesh. So starting from 2015, 15, 16, 17, 18, so 15, 16, 17, 18, four years, Four years, I actually did, went to the same area, asked to the same people, observed the same situations. What I realized, the sea level rise or the coastal erosions or the tropical cyclones, the intensity or the scale actually changes over year. So in last year, what I say, for example, in coast one part of the town, what I saw last year, it existed there, but next year, it was not there. It was gone. The first question came to my mind, like I saw a large like palm tree type things. I think like it was coconut tree. Yeah, it was coconut tree. And there was a small billboard in that coconut tree. And that coconut tree was technically in the city. Like it was just already like, uh, I would say like 100 or 200, 100 meters in the sea. So I asked the like I when I saw that billboard, I thought like, Definitely, this is not a smart advertising plan. No one is actually swimming in the sea and watch that advertisement, like small billboard. Then I actually asked the people, like, how come people actually put their small billboard in that tree and how come that tree is now in the sea? And they said, you know what? This tree was just six months before. It was actually even 10, like, 100 meters inland from the like coastline and now it's part of the sea wow so i actually see it as an extreme urgency extreme urgency and you know like to uh, to me or to you like or to anyone right uh, we can talk about something like, you know, in some nice word, some scientific word or something like that. But what if we, you or me, are the victim of it? So I still remember, like, uh, I think like it was during my graduate training in Europe. We were talking about poverty and hunger. Like, okay, how, how people feel about hunger. So we all agreed, like, people really feel bad they feel really hungry. Then I actually ask all my colleagues, was there like any of you spend a few days without knowing what food you will have on your plate? Did you have any experience with that? They said, no. I did like some, uh, you know, no food day for, for like, you know, my own interest. But after that, I took my food. But no, that was not the case. You don't have the food because you cannot afford the food and you do not know what food will be waiting for you. Did you have any experience like that? And that none of us, even me, I didn't have that experience. So what I'm actually trying to say, the urgency, the extent can be only felt by those people who are in that situation. I'm working on the refugee crisis. I can guarantee you, Paul, I can spend my entire life but might not be able to understand the sufferings and the pain of the refugee population because I am not a refugee, right? 
It's only the people who are the victim. They feel the urgency, the existence. And of course, it's a very good, like you and me and um, people from all over the world, we are trying to understand. But we have to admit this. We are using our own lens, our own perspective. Sitting on an air-conditioned room here and I'm talking about global environmental change, you know, like I can talk something, some nice word, I can give you some equations or something like that. But if you are in that part of the world or in, even in southern Arizona, working on the road homeless or road construction worker or illegal immigrants uh, having no air condition at home, then we'll feel the urgency. What do you think are the biggest challenges in science today? <laughs> uh, several, I would say like several challenges, but definitely those are just my opinion. One is, I would say, it's more about the translation of science. Science is valuable. You know, like, uh, as we discussed a little bit at the beginning, now we are sending, you know, like various spaceships to different planets, right? Mars, we are exploring Mars right now. But at the same time, billions of people in, in this planet, planet Earth, we do not have the water to drink. So how we can justify human advancement uh, approaching to the space or something like that. What I think it justifies. There are different frontiers of science and, you know, activities, development. It, it is necessary to explore space. It's for human civilization. So I think it is important for right now that how we translate our science, how we can tell people, policymakers, users, this is the value of science, and this is how this can benefit our life or our future generation. So when we say future generation, people get confused, like it's after 500 years. So I don't care what happens after 500 years. But if we can say future generations could mean even your children, who's just now in, for example, grade four, and you're taking care of them right now. So how we translate those signs and how... If we can actually translate those signs, definitely, I hope that can create impact. And if we can actually educate our people by explaining science, that can create pressure on our policymakers about acknowledging science. Often I say, since I actually part of global studies, I tell also my students, policymakers are not aliens. They're just like us. They're just like human beings like us. We have to create an environment. We have to convey the necessity for us. And their future depends on us because we'll be voting for them. So if I am convinced, then automatically they will get convinced. So it's very important. I think that is one of the things that lacks in many societies like there's very good science, but people are disconnected from that. It's about how we translate those science and make it relevant to a people's life. If you just say, hey, I'm going to send a spacecraft to planet Mars, people will not, maybe, oh, that's exciting things. But okay, come on, like I don't have employment benefit or like health insurance, like how do I care for that? So at that point, 
we have to just explain what are the benefits. I cannot tell you what are the benefits for those because I'm not working in that field. But those who work just, they can actually explain, not just sitting at JPL or NASA. I think that can even actually help those like big organizations with the people's support can create political momentum. And that eventually can make more investment on science, technology, and exploring future or space. So that I would say kind of like the challenge we are facing more or less in many societies. What words of advice do you have to young people who are, are thinking about getting into the, to the sciences or into research or, or any, any area in your field? Of course, like what I just said, like science can provide us solutions. Science can help us to explore unknown future. Science can help us to explore unknown universe. It's very fascinating. It's a very, very fascinating. Of course, like we all have to work on something to earn or to maintain our own life. But when you actually dive into science, when you dive into like how you can make the linkage between science and society, how when you can see the impact, like it's immeasurable, like you cannot measure the happiness. You cannot say, oh, hey, I got two pounds of happiness. No, (laughs) it's very spiritual. So enjoy that. There is endless opportunities, endless opportunities. And one thing is opportunities will actually not knock on your door. You have to go to that opportunity. And also at the same time, like uh, once you actually explore something unknown, it can give you recognition. You do not need to attract for people for recognition. If you can actually find something, something new, something meaningful, that automatically gives you recognition. That automatically gives happiness and satisfaction. And now you have internet, technology, even more modern, advanced technology will be available today, tomorrow, next year. Use those for yourself, for your family, for your neighborhood, for your community, for the people on this planet. You know, that's such a great message to end on. And I want to thank Salah for sitting down with us. And special thanks to NASA for making this episode possible, to Nisha for producing, and to Paul Molan for conducting the interview. If you like what you heard, stay tuned for future episodes. You can subscribe to Scientel wherever you get your podcasts and find us at Scientel, all spelled out, dot org. From these scientists in our respective home studios to all of you out there in the world, thanks for listening to our stories. <laughs>